0: and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture bulletin. I'm Alexandreau.
1: And I'm Sean Pattenden. This week we are thrilled to be joined by singer-songwriter and all-round creative hothouse Catherine Williams.
0: And time loop chaos. We watch season two of Natasha Leone's Russian Doll on Netflix.
1: Plus we listen to Two Ribbons, the third album by Let's Eat Grandma and contemplate Steve Coogan and Sarah Soleimani's Me Too comedy Chivalry on Channel 4. And we have the best songs of all time.
0: All this on today's Culture Banker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Catherine Williams is a Mercury Prize nominated musician who's released 11 full length albums since 1999 and collaborated with John Martin, Thea Gilmore, Laura Barnett, Caroline Duffy and Ed Harcourt, among so many others. Paul Weller is also a big fan. Catherine is also a published novelist. The Ormering Tide, what a title, came out last year. I had to look that up, Catherine. Um, Hello, delighted to have you on the show.
2: Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, blushing a bit with the intro, but...
0: (laughs) I genuinely went down a a Wikipedia Googling... um, hole looking up what the the omering tide is and it's it's just you dug a
1: hole to quote Catherine
0: (laughs) (laughs) extraordinary um your new album introduction comes out today 23rd of April which is record store day why are record stores and RSD vital from an artist's point of view
2: well I think it's about connecting to independent record stores and the people who work in them and making special exclusive things to get people out away from their computer and to physically buy physical stock. It's good for those collectors because there's only a limited amount of these introduction vinyls I think there's only 500 and they're on orange vinyl once they're gone that's it and it's quite a nice thing to have a finite special thing to release on a certain day I don't know I don't know ask the (laughs) label (laughs)
0: I'm I'm a big I'm a big vinyl fan myself Um, I collect them uh, I have a wall of them And I think record stores have suffered really badly during the pandemic. I know certainly of the record stores I used to go to in London, about half of them have closed down because they were kind of teetering on the brink. So we'd advise our listeners to go out, (laughs) find a record shop. And buy a record.
1: You'll find the record shop record by seeing day. the queue outside tomorrow morning, because <laughs> usually it's right down the street. And well, I'll tell, the you,
0: I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, go out the next day or Monday <laughs> and buy a record, because <laughs> that helps too. And hopefully buy Catherine's record. Um, as we mentioned, you are the arch collaborator. How does this happen? Do you just pick up the phone? Do you hang around street corners waiting for them to come out of their house? <laughs>
2: Yeah, Under Red Light. It's something that's evolved over time. It basically came down to when I I did a writing retreat with Chris Difford and started co-writing. I co-wrote with Neil McCall, whose house I'm in now. Before that, I'd been really fearful and I had like agoraphobia and like massive imposter syndromes and I found it really difficult to do any collaboration and then slowly with co-writing and realising that it didn't all have to be about me and things could be better if you actually trusted someone else's talents and had fun with them. So now, now it's something that I teach a lot when I when I tutor at Arvon or work with young people. I get them to co-write and to understand that trying to explain your creative process to someone else gives you a clarity on your own process and and you can move forward. Yeah, I don't really see a lot of people and it's a really nice way to feel like you've got friends.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's <laughs> wonderful. Who's next on your hit list?
2: Well, I have already written an album with Michelle Stoddart from The Magic Numbers and we've we've labelled the music we've made together as Clip Rock and it's just kind, <laughs> of, kind <laughs> of bangles-y. And then I've also written an album with Edinburgh-based artist withered hand and that was getting together and writing because he'd lost his friend Scott Hutchinson from Frightened Rabbit and I'd lost my friend Jeremy Hardy and we start and we have this sort of collective kind of working out of things through writing together so that's going to get recorded in Iceland but yeah I just I'm just one of those people pleasers who says yes to everything and then works (laughs) (laughs)
0: A... <laughs> I, I, can, I thoroughly approve of anything banglesy. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> let's meet our other guest.
1: Yes, let's. Jude Rogers is a writer and broadcaster and show regular. She's just published The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. Hello, Jude. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. For those that don't know your book, Give us the elevator pitch. What
3: is this about? Oh, oh, oh. So <laughs> it's a book about how music shapes our lives, Sean. That's why it's on the Yay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so no, it's um it's t- it's telling her it's basically um told through twelve songs from my life, but well, my music is the music from my life um will hopefully help other people tell the stories of their lives through songs. I go from a very emotional moment at the start when I last saw my dad, who died when I was little, um, at the front door of our house. Um, The last thing he asked me before he went to hospital was, to tell him what the number one single was which i did, never did but now i do i tell him that and i also sorry dad i tell you lots more about my life in songs <laughs> so there you go um but i I'm, I'm sure lots of us have this as adults you know when we think about our love of music and how it's run through our lives you know why are there certain songs that catapult us back to the past why does the song remind us of a certain person be it a family member an old lover um whatever it may be there's a lot about music and memory there's a lot about music and falling in love and lust and why music wants to make us dance um why music helps us when we grieve why we grieve musicians when they die why do we have that close connection um and obviously I'm a journalist and not a scientist I'm still very proud I've got a book full of science when I got a single award GCSE, which I scraped in science. <laughs> I have, you know, have interviewed lots of people, um, neuroscientists, psychologists, there's sociology, anthropology in there. Um, I also interview musicians, journalists. You know, there's lots of my professional work in, in there as well. But yeah, it travels from before we're born until later life, you know, ends up in the present day, you know, coming out to the pandemic um, and how our relationship to music, well, lots of people who love music, their relationship to music may have deepened or changed. Yeah, it's been amazing to just interview all these clever people and find stuff out.
1: Jude, you have an ology. Now you probably have like, you know, (laughs) 17,000 ologies. Um, Any tracks you had to miss out, surely, because you've only picked 12. It must have been really hard just to pick 12. Tell us about that.
3: In my last chapter, I have a list (laughs) of the ones that didn't get in. and Obviously, it's not comprehensive. Um, Obviously, I had to, and I write about this in the last chapter, you know, what story am I trying to tell about myself? Um, And I try to get every song to say something different about how it had helped me in my life in some way there's a Kate Bush song which really helped me after my son was born and I was having a really tough time um Buffalo by Nena Cherry made me think about how girls could express themselves differently and you know I was literally rapping in a terrible Southwalian accent in the school playground but yeah there's there's lots of songs I've missed out one of them is I pick later as my favorite song of all time I've got no Sam Cooke or Dusty Springfield in the book which is insane but I think With them, it's not certain songs I click with, it's their voices and certain albums. So it's, yeah, it's specifically about songs. I am making an extended mega mix playlist of this Yeah. Which, which goes from <laughs> Eliane Radig to Max Boyce. So that's quite good.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> from the su- sublime to the... <laughs> yeah, to the <laughs> one
3: last question on
1: this one. <laughs> I, I may have asked you this before, but I, and you may change your mind, but out of all the research into music with your ologists, right, mm-hmm. what has been the most surprising fact about how we really do sort of adhere ourselves to certain songs and certain
3: voices, as you say? Finding out about how musical memory works in our brains was really fascinating. We respond to music and memory in a different way to other memories. And it's in the same part of our brain that um, our sense of self and identity and relationships is. You know, it's all firing up in the same part of the brain. You know, in some ways it's not surprising, but to have that confirmed by people who put electrodes on people's heads is amazing. And I just love finding out about how babies, um, the first study that proved that babies could remember something from the womb used music as its tool and yeah this it's it's just fascinating there's lots of debates within neuroscience about whether music is part of our evolution but I very much argue you know why is why is it still here if it's not part of you know being human who we are how we've evolved how we connect with each other express ourselves all these things but yeah this you know I also like the bit where um, somebody's talking about um, having an orgasm under an um, fMRI scanner. That's quite good. Well, I'll leave that for you to find. (laughs) (laughs) Buy the book. Buy
0: the book. (laughs) my, My mother, who is in the very advanced stages of Alzheimer's, has lost completely the ability to speak. The only thing that will bring her out is if you get a lyric wrong oh, in a song wow. she really loves, mm. then she'll pipe up and correct you. Wow. It's the it's the only thing that remain that that can still mm. express through mm-hmm. speech. Yeah. You know, she has loads later of
3: life, later life and dementia. In here is you know that is such a wide area of research at the moment, and I, I interview my best friend who works in that field. Um, and yes, this, the experiences she's had are staggering. I think you'd a uh, Yeah, I I hope it gives comfort to people who are, you know, caring for, you know, people with, um, you know, various um, dementias. Because I think knowing that you can access people through music is of some comfort, it's that connection, isn't it? Mm -hmm.
1: And for those of us who feel we're sliding into dementia already. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? Anyway.
0: (laughs) Before we move on, a reminder, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more. And special shows just for subscribers. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And don't you get fresh with me. (laughs) Nobody should have to wait three years for the return of one of their favourite series. But time continues to bend in unusual <laughs> ways it seems around nadia i'm talking of course about natasha Leon's brilliantly realized time traveling character in russian doll season two of which just dropped on netflix let's have a little listen the universe finally found something worse than that i broke time
3: do i need to be worried
0: We have unfinished business. So you're telling me that this family lost its gold twice on a train? Nadia, don't mess this up. Maybe we're just supposed to, like, enjoy the ride. I'm still
3: exploring my actions.
0: There are things in life that cannot be
3: explained. Inexplicable things happening is my entire modus operandi.
0: More like, when are
2: we? Oh.
0: Uh, Never mind. Jude, there's always a special kind of trepidation of second season syndrome when it comes to a series that was as good and fresh as Russian Doll in his first outing. Did it live up to its legacy for you?
3: Well, I have to be the embarrassed person put my hand up and say I didn't watch the first season. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I'm so link. envious of you. <laughs> No, so um, I don't know how I didn't, because, you know, we've been at home for two years. <laughs> um, I think, you know, the the great riches that Netflix and various other, you know, streaming services allow us. Um, I love Natasha Lyonne. I loved her in Orange is the New Black. She is just such an amazing character. So I, what I did, which I think this suits the time loop thing of Russian Doll. I watched the first couple of episodes of season two, <laughs> and then I went back to season one. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I did do a little bit of a plot um, summary, you know, cheeky nose on uh, Wikipedia. But then I thought, I can't read this. I don't want to know what happened. So I've kind of gone the wrong way around. But yeah, it's great. What I love about it, and this is going to sound really like I'm 300 years old. I love that the episodes are short. But how in those episodes you get so many rich ideas and fun and profound stuff at the same time. Obviously, because I watched, you know, season two, episode one. For everything else, something happens in that which I don't think we can say. But it it twists the idea of the time we've been a very different way to the first season. And for a moment, I wasn't sure what was going on, so to replay it, and then I realised, and I thought, "Wow, that's a clever idea." What I love about it, um, and this seems reflected in the majority of season one that I've seen so far, is just just so carefully put together. Every element is just so, you know, lifts you up. Um, There's a um, bit in the first episode, which I can quote without spoilers, where just the opening bass notes of Bella Lugosi is dead come in.
0: (laughs) The music is terrific. The
3: music is so brilliant. Having great music in great Netflix series is, you know, everybody knows this is a thing that modern telly does brilliantly, you know, from the Sopranos onwards, whatever. Breaking Bad does it fantastically. I just thought this was to another level and letting a song go on for a very long time, kind of letting it um, immerse you in this different place, if I can say that without being a spoiler. Uh Um, Just how it amplifies her character. What a character, you know. Um, Oh, just her voice is just wonderful, isn't it? It's one of the best things (laughs) ever.
0: Catherine, were you a fan before, and are you now or still or not?
2: Well, so while I was waiting for season two, I'd never seen it, and I was kind of really excited just by the title because I could quote my favourite joke, that I hate Russian dolls, they're so full of themselves. (laughs) 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 But, yeah, so I watched the first two episodes of season one And that kind of Groundhog Day thing, I loved her character, but that sort of Groundhog like repetition kind of thing, it kind of did my head in. And then, so I've watched five episodes of season two, and I am, like, really heavily into it now. And I think that season two is much, much better and more fulfilling to watch. I love her character, and... I love how sassy she is and her quips. And she's always got, like, literally every time she's on screen, there's some sort of quotable thing. I mean, when she's in hospital and she's saying something like, are they are they actually seeing patients here or is this some sort of Beckett play? And <laughs> yeah. every time she sort of opens her mouth, even if it's just to sort of do that sort of Jewish shruggy, meh, uh, you know, it, it, I. I love who she is and and the fact that it has that, um, you know, from The Velvet Underground to Janis Joplin, and you get the full force of those songs married to her character, who, you know, is like massively sleep deprived, uh, massive drug taking, smoking, you know, just, but like kind of, in a kind of real sort of laid-back, sassy way that you don't always get from a female character. Usually there's some sort of, I don't know, like payoff for all of that. It is much more like a kind of sopranos kind of lead male character, and I, I love that, and I really loved that the music was kind of echoed in the, in the cinematography of it with the colours and stuff in the same way that you get those beautiful palettes in like a Wes Anderson film or something. It's definitely got its own sort of world that it lives in. And I think that it was nicely done in a sort of kind of simple way, in the way that like um, a play, a small play in a studio with a, a limited kind of set it's kind of, it's almost that it has kind of a, a that feel of a studio play, you know, the, the set of the travel from one place to the other is the same, and you know what's happening, and I thought it was really clever. A
0: director I once worked with um, said to me something that I, I, I remember a lot while watching this, they said, don't apologise for the space you take in the story, mm. and I think that's Part of my delight with her character that she takes up her space in a front footed unapologetic way. And you don't Mm -hmm. you just don't often see that. Mm -hmm. Sean, a lot of the fun relies on her swagger and her unfazable New Yorkness. Did your love affair continue to grow or did it peter out?
1: Well I'm afraid, Alex (laughs) It petered out for this season. A little bit. I liked season one because it is so claustrophobic and it is so close and the one event keeps happening. And within that sort of box, it reflects her state of mind as she is boxed in. It's claustrophobic. She can't get out of the state of mind. She can't stop doing this. And it's about her own you know mm. it's the metaphysical problems that she has with this because they've broadened the storyline out into she i mean it's not a spoiler to say she is going to be time traveling in this season i've watched two um
0: well she was time traveling <coughs> last season just I much spe- shorter loop, and much, small, a much <laughs> yeah, smaller much yeah. smaller loop so yeah. maybe the loop is yeah, 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 yeah.
1: expanded in that way and in that the possibilities being so endless made it less attractive and her relationships with other people made they are not all her and I almost wanted it to be like a screwball comedy where she can spar with someone who is so very like herself but they all pale into comparison because Natasha Leon is so brilliant hmm. I felt somehow that was just mismatched in the storytelling. You see
0: Catherine some people like the repetition.
1: Yeah I like that small that that, that very yeah. closed off Groundhog Day thing of season one so season two I felt was a bit I mean I like it, but I felt it was flabbier. I couldn't quite connect with her and the other characters because of those reasons so much. And Alan needs to come back a bit more, who was her compadre in the first season, who was experiencing something so very similar to her. There's nobody doing that. Also... One more thing but yes. I
0: think to, just to interject yeah. that he he came into the first season more and more as it went on I
3: suppose so we saw bond So I think it mirrors that structure Or maybe it does
0: that he you it leaves you wondering what's he up yeah. to yeah. at some point did, I, did anyone else notice some german writing behind him You did yeah. didn't you something like um,
1: that's so, Ah but that comes in and, later to see. And it's like inherently? what what's yeah. going on one of my points is, I've seen a lot of TV recently where someone gets a small piece of paper and it tells them to meet somewhere at a certain time. They don't know what it's about, and they all do it. You just don't want a plot where someone just says, "Oh, fuck it, I don't want to do that. I'll have a cup of tea," and then something really, really awful happens because they don't do the thing on the piece
0: of paper. But then, but then that's you my show. Actually, get the show. If you they get didn't. something different. <laughs> um, can I ask you something technical, Sean. Yeah. Um, because it struck me that instead of a massive cliffhanger, mm. season one tied up all its loose ends. Yes, you see, yeah, that, very satisfying. Did that actually create more of an anticipation to see what they will do with season two instead of actually making it less?
1: Yeah, I suppose so, because then you've got to really pull something out of the bag and have a very yeah. different sort of storyline. I do like the way it is about. it is about intergenerational trauma, might be a bit about epigenetics, epigenet- and I do wonder how mm-hmm. deep they can go into epigenetics without all the problems of epigenetics coming up. You know, it's big issues here, and it's always admirable when you're dealing with really big issues. And say, and especially female intergenerational trauma, which we don't see on screen so much. Yeah, hmm.
0: and a really strong supporting cast. I should say a word for Elizabeth Ashley yeah. is Ruth. Close, 70, um, and Schitt's Creek, Annie Murphy. I'm not going to mention what roles the play, because that's mm-hmm. actually a spoiler. And <clears> even <throat> Rosie O'Donnell pops up. Did anyone see that in the credits to the first episode? So in the credits, yeah. Because she does the uh, underground train announcer. Yeah. Appa- that's apparently, they <laughs> just wanted a really authentic New York <laughs> voice. So she picked up the phone and yeah. called Rosie and said... Do you want to come and do the train (laughs) announcements and my thing? Jude, um, it was notable to me that the story's female protagonists are exceptionally well-written, which you would expect, but also that the main man, Charlie Barnett's wonderful Alan, is really atypical in all sorts of ways. Is there a case to be made that actually female-led projects broaden the spectrum of what is now expected of male characters?
3: Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I really love his character actually, and that's the thing I'm most looking forward to find out more about from the first season because he's got this gentility, but this sort of strength and this, you know, the, I, you know, I know what happens to him in the first season. I've got that far. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I just, it's so exciting to watch the opening credits of a series that you've heard great things about but haven't watched before, and it just says created by this woman starring this woman directed by this woman and she's just walking to your you know to depeche mode it's like yeah no it's just it's so wonderful and i know things you know things are changing but these things are still rare you know so um yeah i just think she's she's such a talent isn't she yeah
0: and the and the 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 one-liners as Catherine mentioned they are sparkling um uh, apart from so are we treating patients here today <laughs> or just putting yeah. on a Beckett play that Catherine already mentioned there's every time you compliment me a cockroach gets its wings <laughs> and my my favorite Turns out I'm the norm of this, cheers.
1: <laughs> There's another favourite of mine, but it gives the plot away, so I won't yeah. say it. But they are everywhere, aren't and they? And the online?
0: cinematography is a lovely uh, sort of homage to 80s masters <laughs> of depicting New mm. York. There was a lot of Altman and de Palma and mm. Scorsese yes, in yes. there. You could, mm. you could kind of it's see a shift way for very that, subtly. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, you're not fully sold, but you'll stick with it, I imagine. Well,
1: I might keep, yeah, having a watch, and I'll probably then get addicted because, to it.
0: Because, and that's something I have to say to Jude and Catherine, who are now going back to series one, mm, who we've now that, indoctrinated. That actually season one pays off the more you watch it. Yeah. Because there's an enormous amount of Easter eggs basically littered through the first few episodes that then become huge Mm. subplots. uh, So I would say universally a thumbs up with a sort of one wavering. A
1: wavering. Right, let us welcome Catherine Williams once more. It's so lovely to have you join us, Catherine. Thank you. With Catherine has a guitar in the background. She's not allowed to touch, but we're daring her to touch it. So we'll (laughs) let you know by the end of the show. How's 2020 faring for you after the last few
2: years? Does it feel like things are moving again? Yeah, they're sort of speeding up now after a long time of nothing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I've got this best of introduction on vinyl coming out for Record Store Day. And then next week I've got the first single of my new album coming out. So far this year, I've co-written three albums for um, international artists. So, yeah. Yeah, but the house looks like shit.
1: (laughs) 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 Touche. Wonderful. Um, Tell us about Introduction. Was it hard picking the tracks? Because your back catalogue is bloody enormous to you. (laughs) Use <laughs> the turn of phrase. Yeah, well,
2: 2017, the record label, uh, One Little Independent, who I've been on for quite a lot of years, um, they put a box set out, which um, Jude actually wrote the introduction for. And it's like 10 albums, 10 bonus albums and two books. This sort of introduction, I mean, there's still people that come to my gigs 20 years on who, you know, are new to it. And I remember when I was a, an art student back in the day that I got into John Martin and Nick Drake from their introduction albums. It's a weird thing since, since the box set and doing this. I've never been an artist that's looked back before. That's been a weird change in my life to like look backwards and see where I've been instead of where I'm going. Mm. Is it helpful? <laughs> you want to be forward?
1: <laughs> moving so we're going to play sequins in a moment because it's on the album tell us about this song
2: so um sequins is on the album crown electric that was produced mm-hmm. by neil mccall and it was written with ed harcourt in fact it was written it's one of two songs i wrote in ed harcourt's bath He was not in the bath at the time. (laughs) Um, So I wrote Sequins and another song called Cuckoo, which is on an album called Hypoxia. Both of those things were written in his bath in London, which he no longer lives in that house, which is a bit frustrating because it was a great bath to write in. Um, So Sequins, we wrote in, I think we wrote that in an hour. And Mm we've been talking about, this character who wants to be glamorous in their old age, and instead of having mm-hmm. pennies put on their eyes in a coffin, they want sequins. Fantastic. Well let's give it a listen. Sequins. Heels get stuck in the cracks of the clouds. The lightning strikes at the pull of a shoe. If I walk the afterlife with no makeup on, I'll be frightening the age. The disintegration, now the fillers are holding and I like the
1: sensation. So, Catherine, apparently I read an interview with you that said you used to sit in cemeteries writing poetry as a teenager. (laughs) Is this true? Do you still do it?
2: No, I don't still do it, but yes, it was. (laughs) I mean, I was a big sort of Smiths-Morrissey fan Mm. and I thought I was the first teenager to ever... um, You know, be obsessed with that and we. Read Oscar Wilde in cemeteries. <laughs> I think that I'm surprised the cemeteries weren't full because I
1: certainly did things like that, and I know loads of people were. <laughs> maybe we're just spaced out.
0: You don't want to know what young gay men do in cemeteries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's it's another not, podcast, it Alex. It is not
0: read poetry. Every
1: <laughs> well, maybe afterwards. <laughs> I can imagine. Anyway, back to Catherine. <laughs> what was your first song?
2: Well, I was in a band with my sister and we wore pink tops and white denim skirts and we were called Yak Attack and the first song we ever wrote was Got To Get It Right and my sister was on keyboards and I think it went... um, if you're gonna come into my life, gotta get it right, gotta get it right, gotta get it right. Whoa! <laughs> and so, yeah, it's not recorded anywhere. This is probably the only recording of it. <laughs>
1: this, this. Is our exclusive listeners? Yes, that's fabulous. How old were you?
2: I think I was twelve or thirteen.
1: I would have been a smash it. Yeah. And then later, when you signed Creation Supremo, I put that in inverted commas, Alan McGee used to manage you.
2: How was that? Yeah, Alan McGee managed me for about eight years, I think. It was Mm -hmm. when I was on the major labels um, just after the Mercuries. And he was brilliant because I was, you know, was riddled with fear and stage fright and Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. And and he always used to just say, um, hey, Catherine, you know what? Just fuck it.. And like strangely, <laughs> it was really good to hear that before going on stage. <laughs> but yeah, I used to go to his death disco nights and he managed the um, the kills and the libertines at the time, and um, it was kind of a mismatch for me in that world, like I remember being backstage at a libertines gig. With all manner of Russian doll business going on, one can imagine. And I I remember, I remember chatting. I love the drummer in the band, and I remember chatting to him and saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to have to go. My legs are killing me. I've done too much gardening, and I haven't fed the cat." And it was like, and he was so nice. I just realised that you know I was not meant for that world, really. (laughs)
1: And it's probably saved you, Catherine. It's why you're here today. (laughs) Your voice is just, I mean, your speaking voice is lovely too, but your vocals are just so beautiful. They are soft, they're lilting, but then you hear the lyrics. Um, And it's something that really stands out in your music. There's not a trees and flowers and hello birds although there is a bit but you know there's so much less than you would think bitingly funny on little black numbers the end refrain is just fat men and thin girls repeated what how do these things strike you because you're a big poetry fanster is that right
2: yeah I love poetry in fact I spent mm. the whole of that January, the first month, doing um, a poetry course every day of January.
1: Yeah, I heard about this. Was it on Zoom? Yeah, we, in the mornings. What was it? Lots of people sitting down, writing poetry all in. You know what? Boxes. The
2: first day, the first of January, I signed on, thinking no one, really hung over thinking no one else is going to join, and it was hosted by um, Claire Shaw and Kim Moore, and there was two hundred and fifty people ready to write poetry, and it was every single morning of January, and it was amazing absolutely loved it. And I'm a massive poetry fan. I was the judge for the Ted Hughes Poetry Prize a few years back. And yeah, I've worked with um, Caroline Duffy and a lot of literary poetry kind of people. And, And when I've done those sort of festivals, I feel kind of much more at home. There's tea in little (laughs) and,
1: <laughs> there's no members of the libertines standing, yeah like you sit
2: just... and there's like there's yeah. like a sofa and a and a standing lamp and a pot of tea and I'm like oh my gosh I found my five. <laughs> I think the greatest amount
1: of elbow patches on cardigans as well at literary events yeah well that's I've seen that's... more of them in the wild than anywhere else yeah that's my
2: <laughs> kind of niche porn to be honest
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about poetry of course you wrote Hypoxia which you mentioned earlier earlier about Sylvia Plath. Did you find out new things while researching it, while writing the album? Because you focus a lot on motherhood and the fact she had two really young children towards the last stages of her life.
2: Yeah, well, so... That was a writing commission for New Writing North that ended up Mm -hmm. being uh, an album afterwards. So they sent me everything that she'd ever done and everything that was written on her, which was like a massive amount to get through. Mm. I hadn't known that she'd written children's books as well, and then there was all of her uh, art drawings and etchings, which are so beautiful. So I, I concentrated on the bell jar to... To make that the sort of theme and the overall kind of umbrella for that record, she's known as like a kind of suicide, the, the sort of suicide poster girl, and then there's all yeah. always associated. There's
1: a fetishization of her, isn't there? In that sense, yeah, very yeah. much one and, aspect.
2: Yeah, and it sort of and it and it sort of flattens who she is as a character, really, because mm-hmm. we you know if you listen to her voice and her. Like interviews and how much she laughs and how you know full and broad we are it i just I just found it really the best way to to honor her was to understand her through the writing of her characters and 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 avoid the personal life and the sort of cliches within that
0: mm-hmm. no, that's wonderful
2: mm absolutely musically, who do you listen to when you need cheering up? I listen to all manner of things um I'm a massive fan of Devon Spruill and her album The Gold String is something that I listen to a lot I listen to Midlake um For Driving um I listen to loads of podcasts and um sort of I think I've sort of mainlined Radio 4 for the last like 20 years um yeah so it's, it's a combination of listening to nice people with nice voices like Roman Mars on 99% Invisible and then going back to albums that I've loved forever like Jenny Mitchell Blue or, yeah, Neil Young. Yeah, not
1: the, not, not the cheeriest album, Catherine, but, you know, <laughs> there we go. Has,
2: has Carol Ann Duffy ever told you a joke? Carol Ann Duffy is so fucking funny. I... Love her. When I first met her, I was terrified of her because um, mm. she she holds no prisoners, and if you're <laughs> wrong, she will just say it. And I love that about her. But yeah, she's she's very, very, very funny and filthy. <laughs>
0: Every week, we ask our guests to bring in a current favorite track of theirs as a service to you, the listener. Um, Jude what's yours and why do you love it?
3: I've brought in the new Hot Chip single just out this week called Down, just because I love Hot Chip. And it's the end of April, which means it's nearly summer. And we will have a summer festival season this year. And it's really exciting. It has this great sample from a track I didn't know um, by a band called the Universal Togetherness Band. It's a nice band name. It sounds a bit like a duet between you know some really cool kind of soul singers uh female soul singers and um and lovely Alexis from Hot Chip but it's very funky and it's very summery and I can't wait to see them live again because they always make me very happy.
0: Wonderful it's going on the playlist and here is a little taste of Down by Hot Chip.
1: Now for some more music. Let's eat, Grandma, whose name is based on a grammar joke, is Rosa Walton and Jenny Hollingworth. Two Ribbons is their third album released this weekend. After a few turbulent years, including the death of Hollingworth's boyfriend, the musician Billy Clayton, at 22, what will the indie pop duo serve up? Serve up? Let's eat, Grandma. Get it?
0: Oh,
1: I oh, know I see. it's terrible. Yeah. All right, let's listen to Levitation. Oh,
3: it's a
1: again I'm going to start with you. This is an album which does come from a place of movement because one of them moved away from Norfolk where they were both based and loss. The death of Billy Clayton did hit both women hard. They were both friends with him. Is this a reflective album? What are we getting from Let's See Grandma?
3: If you just heard this without the context you might not get that from it. It is it's a bit different to their, oldest, their older stuff. Um, when they started out, they were a lot more sort of strange and fantastical and a bit twisted in their songs. Um, they had this, a song out called Rapunzel, which I loved, which is like crazy little girls reinventing this fairy tale thing. It was slightly unsettling, quite punky. It made me think of polystyrene a bit, um, crossed with Florence and the Machine, which sounds horrible, but it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, But this is a lot more um, mainstream-sounding in some respects. I was driving to the supermarket this morning listening to it. It sounded great. It made me think a bit of... The voices remind me of the the Sundays, the band The Sundays, Harriet Wheeler from The Sundays. And it's like as if they did... As if she did... um, If she did music that was a bit like um, the Stranger Things soundtrack, you know, it's quite 80s, very synthy, um, very glistening. But it's very pop. It's very you know radio friendly um and in the context of what has happened to these young women I think that's really powerful and thinking about it in that context you know does amplify it I don't know if it makes it better or worse it's quite weird I haven't quite worked out I think some of the songs are really good um and striking like um Hall of Mirrors I really liked I don't know if that made me think a little bit of um Russian doll as well. Levitation, which we just heard, is very radio friendly. But you have lots of little things like in the cemetery, this lovely instrumental. Um, But yeah, it made me think about artists, young female artists now, and how pop can be a kind of a tool of like liberation, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. You know, it made me think about self-esteem. Somebody, Catherine, tried to introduce me to about five or six years ago, and I just didn't get around to it because I'm bloody hopeless and Catherine was right as she always is but could kind of think of her you know recent record which has done so well and all this stuff it's so uber pop and she's found this real liberation through that i get i wonder if it's the same for these two women you know they've been through this awful experience and they've like let's make this album that it does hint towards some of the things that's happened you know but in a way that's quite you know you can still you know get something out of it if you haven't been through such a horrible experience you know talking about somebody going away and you know the resonances are there if you want to hear them but yeah it's quite powerful when you think about it in relation to that whether the songs are strong enough to stand themselves and you know grab people at the radio i'm not sure but um Mm -hmm. i do like it it's a good record
1: catherine as Judah's saying this is a pop album and it's very electronic as well i mean there are there is guitar you know, interspersed on it, but it's very, very synthy. What were your feelings about it? it? Reminded me maybe more of Years and Years than something that's indie pop.
2: Yeah, well, um, I know David Wrench, who co-produced the album. I've worked with him a lot, and he's in um, he's in that band Audio Books, which kind of reminded me a bit in some of the the, the more interesting sonic elements. It filled me with a fear and a dread of not wanting to be on a tour bus with either of those people who are obviously at odds with each other. It was a strange thing of, like, the, the euphoria of the synths, and then there was definite, like, fracturing in the lyrics where there was things being said to each other in the band, and that made me feel like... I'd invited a couple round for dinner and they were going, oh, he doesn't like, you don't like green vegetables, do you? And there's like all this, like <laughs> some sort of like slightly jarring uncomfortableness in some of the content. But I don't know if mm. I would have picked that up if I hadn't have read. the book. Right. So I was a bit, a bit annoyed with myself that I didn't come to it just clear. The track two ribbons, which is the last track on the record, I just I really, really love that. And I would put that on a playlist and I love the delicate sort of sincerity of that track, which um and it felt like that had real heart and maybe that's my more my kind of um like genre, you know, a bit more delicate and more stevens Stevensy kind of thing where her emotions are really laid bare on that, and I could I could take that in and properly feel it. It's weird being asked to listen to stuff and watch stuff while, while also having, you know, this is Jude's job. I don't know how you do it, Jude, because <laughs> I have to listen to that record enough times to get past my own thing of, what do I think of this? What do I think of this? <laughs> sort of like experience it rather than go, well, what is my opinion? Um, <laughs> to intellectualise yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think what I ended up feeling, because I had like six and a half hours in the car um, down mm. to London from Newcastle and I listened to it a few times and I kind of felt that the songs were good but there was just some sort of strange, like way that the it it didn't hook onto my heart. And I think that's because they are looking inwards. And sometimes when you can connect to a song, it's that there's a way in for you as the listener. And I do feel like there was a little bit of it, it it's very sort of inward looking.
1: Yes, it's very much a dialogue between them. They are writing songs quite literally about each other and about what's happened in the past two years. Alex, what were your thoughts? Did you find it inward? Or well, did you find I,
0: it I, find, I, I think this is quite interesting because I'm the complete outsider to sort of pop music. And so I find it very easy to come to things <laughs> and just listen to them and see how I react to them rather than mm. thinking in terms of uh, sort of criticism I loved it oh, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely mm. loved it I I found myself turning it up and dancing around the living room with mm-hmm. my partner <laughs> <laughs> especially uh watching you go mm-hmm. I think was my favorite yeah. Yeah. um track I just thought it it would very happily belong let's say, on the soundtrack to the film Electric Dreams. Mm-hmm. It sounded mm-hmm. like Georgia Moralda mm-hmm. um, um stuff in the best possible way. And it, it just filled me with wonder, actually, mm-hmm. about how these two young women in their early 20s could have possibly absorbed that era, mm-hmm. um, by osmosis, presumably, and how refreshing it was to have someone... Look at something so familiar, Mm -hmm. not with nostalgia, but coming new to it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, you know, made this old queen very happy (laughs) and I would I would highly recommend it. Um, to anyone. I I just loved it. I listened to it over and over again and it made me tap my foot.
1: Oh, wonderful. No one's mentioned the W word, wet leg yet. We will be mentioning later. I think it's interesting that these are two girls talking about female experience in their 20s and it's about Often it's about their friendship. This band is rooted in their friendship and they knew each other from when they were four. Mm. There were some fallings out, it seems, having read The bump too, like Catherine. (laughs) A bit of a falling out over lockdown and some really big life changes, including, you know, the love of her life has died at the age of 22. And I got that same feeling. And I think Jude is right as well about the self-esteem idea. There's something bubbling under, I think, with all those three bands or acts about how do we turn that expense Experience into female empowerment, into making it really good. These aren't about perfect experiences we've had, but we're going to make pop music out of them. And I think those mm-hmm. three examples are really interesting in parallel about what May- women are doing mm-hmm. and how this stuff is sounding and coming out. Look,
0: maybe that's why I loved it, because, you know, inviting a couple around to dinner and having them have a <laughs> meltdown mm. is my perfect evening. Oh, you even. love it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Now, it's Catherine's turn to give us her editor's recommendation, a current tune she can't get enough of. What have you chosen and why?
2: Well, I chose Wet Leg. I've been listening to this for quite a while and then it sort of just had a trajectory into being everywhere. And I really... It just reminded me of being in a band with my sister and having fun and... The humour of it all and the joy of it all and is your muffin buttered? Would you like me to get someone to butter your muffin? Is is just one of my favourite lyrics of the year. <laughs> I think I would say
1: this might be Culture Bunker unofficial anthem because this song has been requested and played probably more times than any other song. I think Wetleg Leg
0: is certainly Bunker's yeah, it might be our unofficial favourite. Yeah. Um, so this is Shase Long by Wet Leg, and we're going to drop it in the playlist and here's a little taste.
1: Is your muffin buttered Would you like a
0: Chivalry is a new channel for comedy drama about post-Me Too Hollywood. Producer Cameron O'Neill, played by Steve Coogan, is put in charge of sorting out the more offensive aspects of A Little Death, a (laughs) near-soft porn take on the French resistance. He drafts in a well-respected feminist filmmaker, Bobby Sorabi, the wonderful Sara Soleimani, who agrees to help him persuade the French director to reshoot The Worst Bits. A spoiler follows, but since it happens in the first five minutes, I'm <laughs> sanguine about it. The chauvinist auteur dies during their first meeting. That's the setup. Let's listen to the trailer.
1: Action! Isn't she amazing?
2: I cannot work with men like Cameron O'Neill.
1: I'll <sighs> just try to avoid getting my bottom spanked by a bunch of angry feminists. <laughs> Cameron will reject you at first, then try to sleep with you. Don't
3: let them. Just want to get
0: the scene so we never have to see each other again. Finally,
2: something we both agree on. Don't trust this man. He is sneaky. so oh, come on. You love him, but you hate
1: him. I mean, I presume you want to make this. Of course I want to make my movie. Then
0: get smart. And cut it! Catherine, can the, the industry, with capitals, ever talk about the worst aspects of the industry, honestly? Or is the trap here... Self congratulation of the look at us taking an unflinching look at ourselves. (laughs) Variety. I think
2: you've nailed it there. Um, I found it when you were talking about Russian doll and saying that someone saying it's a comedy or, you know, it's not a comedy, like this, this sells itself as comedic. And I I don't think I didn't laugh. (laughs) Um, I didn't hate it but it made me feel quite tired.
0: Um, <laughs> I think that's my favourite review of a thing ever.
2: Um, I was talking to my friend, uh, Kit Green, and, and he said, oh, it sounds like the sort of thing that my gran would say. Well, it gave me an hour closer to death. And uh, <laughs> like, you know, I'd probably just watch it, but in the same way as um, I'd eat a whole bag of kettle chips and then feel like a bit pointless afterwards I didn't really I really didn't like the sort of extras aspect of it of famous people coming in it just felt like oh do us a favor and be in our show I liked some of the sort of setups of the female director and the me too aspect but it just felt Hmm. it felt a bit sort of laboured and heavy-handed and I really I love Alan Partridge from the past, absolutely loved it, but I really don't enjoy watching Steve Coogan. And I kind of feel like the last few characters he's had have had an undercurrent of a smarmy, kind of creepy, not very pleasant attitude towards females and and a bit Larry and I kind of feel like if that's been his chosen character a few times maybe he's telling us something about himself <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, Yeah I, I have to say I wasn't entirely sure at times whether it's satirising Tinseltown mm-hmm. or the Me Too movement mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure if it's the latter whether it's a little bit soon to be making fun of that genuine pain. Um, Sean. Um, the programme was apparently born from the real life quarrels between Coogan and Soleimani when they were working on the 2019 film Greed. Which,
1: do, do which Catherine may be referring yeah. to as one of the characters that Steve Coogan is playing recently, who isn't particularly uh, yeah. likeable.
0: So, do its truthful roots show, do you think? Well, I think? Is that why it's not very funny, because it's satire and it's close to the I think there bone? are a
1: few points with this that I found really hashtag problematic. Now, one you've just mentioned, the latter thing. So, if you are attempting to satirise the Me Too movement, which is actually a serious movement to stop women being assaulted and worse then I think you have to really think deeply about what you're doing and who's in your show. That's one point. Mm -hmm. The second point is that if you have a programme where one character is deeply flawed, and that is obviously Steve Coogan, it's not Sarah Salatmani, he needs to be redeemed. We have to have a redemption storyline. He needs to change. Therefore, the whole focus of this show is about Steve Coogan. It flips it into its. It doesn't ever... It's never about Sarah Mm. because she's actually a really good director. She knows what she's doing. We know that she's a really solid character. So there's no room for her character to move or work. She is interested in female equality because, yes, that's what you need. So when you have a program that is meant to be about Me Too movement, which satirizes it and whose main character is a man who needs to change, I just had a really big problem with it. I just thought it's not funny. I'm not, I, you know, I don't buy the fact that Steve Coogan is so charming that all these young runners on the set want to have coffee with him and want to have a date with him and the stuff that does happen. I just thought, fuck off.
0: Yeah. That's why right we Well, I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's had fairly glowing reviews. It's had amazing it? reviews, um, yeah. Jude... Is there, is there a point perhaps being made that everyone worries about the sexual politics of the project, but nobody seems to worry about the actual politics of the project that seeks to make World War II a sort of tantalising experience? <laughs> is Hollywood only capable of being correct in only one way at a time?
3: Yeah, possibly. Now, obviously, this, as you say, it's not about Hollywood really, is it? It's kind of very British based so what it's trying to satirize is quite hard to to work out you know I watched three episodes of it I wanted to see where it went because there were some elements of it that I did think were good you know the when the script was subtler I thought it was quite nice you know there were some bits where it just felt very heavy-handed actually there was one bit where I think it might have been right at the beginning where the director said you know who doesn't like this and Steve Coogan's character says um the studio and Cyrus Armani's character says, "Women, you know, just and they were just, and it just went, they just went on after that. They just moved on. And I think when they just leave these things hang and not, you know, interrogate them in great detail, they're actually better. You know, Sienna Miller, I think, is a really good actress, and um, I thought her character was something that might be developed nicely. Um, haven't quite got there yet, but you know, she is somebody who's obviously been." You know, had a long career and and has basically been praised for her beauty, even though she's a very good actor as well. There were some elements of it that I thought, you know, why don't you use Wanda Sykes more? It's Wanda oh, Sykes. Oh, absolutely. Um, that was
1: that sold me on watching the show. Some of that. Yeah, me I saw too. She was In the credit, this I thought is brilliant. Very funny. She's
3: hardly in this at all. She's hardly she the in the main. It. And when she does come in, it um, there's a bit where she talks about the things that she's had to tolerate to be in the industry. I thought that was quite good, but it, that you have these little moments laid against yeah very heavy handed stuff and um I think I might carry on watching it because I want to see where it goes and I think (laughs) maybe slightly a bit of a hate watch because I think oh I really hope that it doesn't end with Steve Coogan getting together with Sarah Soleimani's character because you could Mm, maybe that's Mm. where it will go and yeah I'm with I'm with Catherine there's um you know I think Steve Coogan could be a brilliant actor but it's interesting what's happened to Alan Partridge in recent years you know he's a success story now you know, he was much more interesting when he was living in a travel lodge, <laughs> um, and um, you know, I'm somebody who's had to kind to pull over in a car because I was laughing so much at one of at his nomad audiobook. You know, he can be incredibly funny, but um, you know, he's a man who is known to have lots of relationships with women who is kind of worked in industry for a long time. Yes, we get it, but yeah, this I think this is trying very hard to be a serious drama, and I w- I was similarly very surprised by everybody. Going, oh, isn't it wonderful? It's like, well, once you? peel away at the laser bit it's not Mm. that wonderful (laughs) Uh,
0: this makes me feel actually quite good because i thought the reason i wasn't getting it was because i'm not british genuinely i i thought just that the basis the base point of the comedy that they were mining was this sort of very particular english embarrassment at Anything to do with sex and rude words and, ooh, ooh, mm. she said vagina. And, um, and, and I think if you're foreign and you don't get a little freezing <laughs> by, by hearing the word vagina, yeah. I may, I thought maybe it doesn't work for me. But yeah, no, I, I, yeah, didn't do it. Didn't do it for me either, I'm afraid. And, um, it's one of those things that it will remain a mystery what the critics saw that. That we didn't, but that is our lot.
1: Right, finally, regular listeners will know we always ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time. We add it to the playlist and we make them sweat a lot trying to think about which one it's going to be. Catherine, what have you chosen?
2: Well, I chose Roscoe from Midlake's album, um, the Van Occupanther album, Mm -hmm. just because last week I went to see them live, and I've been a fan for years, and they're from Texas, and I've never got to see Mm -hmm. them live before, and they played this song, and it was absolutely amazing, and they... They have an amazing drummer and they have a flautist in the band. And it's kind of like prog, rocky. That album is just so perfect sonically. And it's an album that has taken me on so many drives after gigs when I've had to drive from like Oxford up to Newcastle to save money on a hotel or whatever. It's my road song and... I know that I'll be listening to it in the next few days going between festivals and gigs and it's that it gives me an energy to to get on and I often put the windows down to get some fresh air to stay awake and shout it sing it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh it's you oh I've heard I've heard that voice on the remote way joking jude what have you chosen as your favorite song of all time
3: well obviously having just written a book about 12 (laughs) songs that have shaped my life um this all i've been thinking about for the last year and i picked one that isn't a chuck um that's the chapter of the book i picked true faith by new order for very similar reasons to Kath picking that brilliant um mid-leg track i put it on within seconds i'm like elevated somewhere else it's wonderful I've always loved it the first time I heard it I was about 14 15 in my grandma's back bedroom with this new little cassette I'd bought you know from Woolworths and Llanelli listening to it in my in you know when I was staying over my grand's. You know, I met Gillian from New Order a couple of years ago, and I and I showed her. Sean knows this. Sean made amazing Gillian Gilbert badges, and I showed Gillian Gilbert my Gillian Gilbert badge, and she didn't call me a weirdo. Um, but you know, <laughs> she didn't call me a
1: weirdo either, so that's good for both of
3: us. But having met the you know some members of the band, and they're lovely, and having that added to the experience of listening to this song, you know, all these different memories have become wrapped up in this song now, from you know the age of thirteen to the age of forty three, and um. You know that's what songs do. You know, in it, as, as I write about it in my book. Um, but, <laughs> as you do. but yeah, it, it's just brilliant. It's a, it's, it's sunshine and energy, and it's wonderful.
1: Wonderful. Well, we'll be putting both of those on our rolling playlist. The link is in the show notes, and it's also on tidal too. Yay! Because they pay you more money, but only a tiny bit more. Money. It's mean nice get better?
0: when people you like turn up turn out to be nice, right? <laughs> There's nothing better. Like when Tanita Tikaram followed me on Twitter, Ooh, my legs oh. went to jelly. I was <laughs> oh, literally wow. like my the best moment of my life. It's
1: the phrase is sometimes meet your heroes, isn't
0: it? <laughs> <laughs> or when I had I had a massive. Are you just uh, showing
1: off now. No, like, no. I had a, listen. I had a
0: massive like hundred tweet. Yeah. Um row, but mm-hmm. a very friendly row with Alison Moyer on whether cream should go first on the scone or jam <laughs> and it's like yeah, but it's the jam, highlight but it's of jam. my it's, stop it it's now. jam. stop it
1: right, and that means with this kind of conversation it's the end of the podcast yeah. it's closing time chatter what we will be discussing is: we strap our acoustic guitar to our back go find the nearest field with a bottle of red wine and write a lilting ballad about it the field, not the wine. Actually, we could just write a ballad about wine. <laughs> I think that would be rather good. I'm sure. I'm sure some of us have. Catherine, what's your closing time chatter?
2: I would love to talk about the new Willie Lottan book, um, "The Night Always Comes." I got sent it to read it because I am interviewing him in a couple of weeks. Um, he's doing a tour, a literary tour, all about it. As a writer, he sort of sits between, I would say, Raymond Carver and John Steinbeck, kind of plaintive, talking about where he's from, like working class people. There's no like great adventure. It's often like the small, the small little mistakes that people make that spiral their lives outwards. And it's about a character called Lynette, and it's set over two days and two nights. And she is one of the characters. She's so alive in the book, and his writing is so beautiful. And it's it's an easy read. You can read it in a couple of days. And But I've worried about this character since finishing the book. And I've, uh, and I've thought about her. And he's such a great writer, and he's such a likeable writer. He creates this beautiful sort of heart-stopping drama. Jude, what's your closing time, Chatter?
3: Better Call Saul is back for its last series. This is a show some people started years ago and they sort of gave up on it because it was a bit slow or whatever. They're all idiots. You're all idiots. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, it is slow and it does take its time, but it is beautiful. The character, the characterisation is amazing. You've seen these. Um, the character of Saul Goodman who was in... Breaking Bad for those of you who've never heard of this before it's a Breaking Bad prequel um which sounds like a such a I don't know masturbatory thing for a director to do but it's brilliant you find out so much more about the characters that go in there but crucially new characters in the worlds in which people live in you know small town America where it's really hard to be who you want to be when your family can dictate your life um when you know you can fall into drug running and how it can you know absolutely turn your life upside down, how you can't escape it. Um, I watched the last two episodes, the first two episodes of the last series um, last night, and it's brilliant. And anybody watching it will be terrified what's going to happen to Kim. That's not a spoiler. Everybody who loves the series, there's the character of Kim Wexler, um, Saul's girlfriend, is one of the greatest American characters ever. But it's brilliant. And if you haven't watched it, just go back to the beginning. It'll take ages, but it, you'll be worth it. <laughs>
1: I haven't watched it, so I better go. Oh, it's great. Okay. Alex, what's your closing time chatter? So,
0: my closing time chatter is Outer Range on Amazon Prime, um, which is about Royal Abbott, spelt royal but pronounced royal, (laughs) um, played by Josh Brolin, Mm -hmm. who is a Wyoming rancher fighting for his land against the sort of Wicked rival family. He rides horses while they ride four wheelers to give you to give you a flavor who discovers a gaping, swirling black void in the middle of his pasture um, following the arrival of mysterious drifter, Autumn. Um, the brilliant Imogen Poots, who has been mm-hmm. a favourite of mine since Black mm-hmm. Christmas. Mm. Side recommendation: Go watch Black Christmas. Um, I liked it so much, I want to play you a tiny little bit of the trailer. This land, this family, it's always been kind of like a dream to me. I
1: don't know, part of me, I guess, figured one day I'd wake up. I'm looking for the Abbott Ranch. Yeah, we're not a tourist ranch.
3: Come on, I'm looking at camp.
2: Only be a few days. Autumn.
0: Royal.
2: Glad to finally meet you. Why are you here? You see that? I've
0: been drawing it for years, and now I see it all over the place here. You stay away from her, you understand? And that goes for everyone.
2: I want that land.
0: So mashing of genres Mm -hmm. I find intoxicating, and there's a lot of it going on at the moment. You know, you get everything from rom-com musical zombie films to this, which is a sort of neo-Western sci-fi noir. Performances by Brolin Poots and Lily Taylor as The Matriarch are sensational. My other half complained it was slow. Mm. Like Jude, I would say um, they're just wrong. I was totally drawn in. There's a rumbling, low-level horror that underlies everything that happens. It makes shots of Blade of Grass seem ominous. Mm. You know, there's a real Twin Peaks, something is very wrong here vibe mm. to mm. it. And and I, I've watched the first two and episodes. And where can one I, see this? Amazon Let's, Prime, Amazon and they're, Amazon they're releasing it on a weekly basis. So right. I've only seen the first two episodes, but utterly compelling and
1: it's out of range should you want to look it up
0: yeah what about you sean
1: well i'm gonna state the obvious but i am quite intrigued about this netflix farrago which i laughed off earlier in the week going oh yeah of course you're not going to always have growth Mm. Mm. some subscribers are going to fall off that's quite that's quite common blah 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 blah." but when you read more about it more stories are coming out they've sacked loads of people they've cancelled loads of in-development shows they've realised because I think the rumour was that Netflix was spending so much more Mm. than they actually had and the figures were really inflated so it would be quite interesting because you know as much as you might hate it I mean it just did blaze a trail and everyone else followed netflix was fairly revolutionary mm. and before we really needed it and before lockdown it just did set a path of that oh my goodness me you don't have to be a channel as such on terrestrial tv yeah. to be able to produce all this stuff to produce your own shows not just be the platform for showing them and, and it did do some fantastic stuff and still does so I'm quite interested in how that happens and what the others do because Apple have obviously tried to really up their game at the moment. They're pouring money into things and the shows are getting better and better.
0: Disney Plus even more. Disney so. Plus
1: is pretty good, yeah, because they've got Marvel and they've got all those things as well. Um, so it's it, what are these services? Are they really indispensable? Did Netflix just you know shoot itself in the foot in that way? Well, we have no Netflix next year. I mean, you know, we'll be. Merge in something else. I just think it's really interesting how this stuff happens and how Hollywood feels threatened and then not, and TV feels threatened and not, mm, and mm. how our behaviour does change through through streaming alone. So we'll see. So you can't have growth forever, can you? I'm going to I mean, predict that's just we'll the have things. Netflix next Will year. You, yeah, Netflix could be the right. One. <laughs> there's
0: anyway. going to be some consolidation in the <clears> industry. Yes, a lot yes, of them are going to be, merge.
1: Yeah, be, too many.
0: Anyway, that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Catherine Williams. <laughs> Thanks so much to Catherine Williams. Thank you. <laughs> and Jude Rogers.
3: Thank you very much. It's been lovely for
0: joining us on the Culture Bunker. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. From myself and Sean, and producers Alex Reese, Yelena Sofroniavich, Elena Ganatra. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Sean Pattenden and Alex Andre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison and the producers
3: were Jelna Sofreniewicz and me, Alex Rees, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.